0: Greetings one and all. My name is Jeremy Walker. I'm a pastor at Maidenbower Baptist Church in Crawley in the southeast of England. And I'm your host for this podcast from the heart of Spurgeon, which is brought to you from Media Gratii. slash podcasts will take you to not just this, but other podcasts which they uh, which they produce. And you can find there a link to this podcast, which will give you a a weekly update on our featured sermon for the week. You can follow us daily, more or less, on x at Reading Spurgeon and you'll get quotes there as well as updates and other news. What we do each week is read through the sermons preached by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, born in 1834, died in 1892, an English Calvinistic or particular Baptist preacher, sometimes known still as the Prince of preachers, a man whose gifts for the ministry of the gospel and the exaltation of Christ, the feeding of souls, were not only recognized in his own day, uh, but have continued to be recognized down to this day. And then each week, having worked through those sermons, we select what we call our featured sermon, some representative text that gives us an idea of what it is that Uh, Spurgeon is about as a minister of the gospel. That brings us this week to Sermon 1057, a sermon entitled Untrodden Ways. This week we're reading from Sermon 1053 to 1059 and this is the sermon on which we'll be concentrating and it's really a sermon about fear. I think it's a really necessary and helpful sermon Uh, as much today as it was when it was preached on the 23rd of June 1872 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And with Spurgeon's pulpit inventiveness, he's preaching from Joshua chapter 3 and verse 4, for you have not passed this way before, or you've not passed this way heretofore in uh, in his translation. Now the introduction is slightly more developed than some. Spurgeon's introductions, as many of you will know if you've been listening or reading along with us, uh, sometimes it's just a couple of lines and he's straight into the meat of his sermon. Sometimes it's much more developed. This one's much more developed. He's talking about trust because to see a distrustful Christian is to see a man robbing God of his glory. He glorifies God most whose faith staggers least. To maintain faith in full vigour is therefore a most important matter. So here's your counterpoint to fear, faith. There's a conservative tendency then, he says, about most of us. Don't imagine that's a political statement. What he means is there's a a reticence to change, there's a, a preference for what already is, so that we build our nest and would rather live and die in it. Even if we're ill at ease in our present circumstances... This feeling, quoting some poetry, makes us rather bear the ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Some spirits are given to change, he asserts, and would almost leap from the pan into the fire, but others of us take root deeply and dread transplanting. We know the present and we dread the unknown tomorrow. We're familiar with wilderness tribulations, but we shudder at the Jordan which lies before us and the giants and the chariots of iron which are yet to be encountered. We're not given to change, he suggests, but are far more likely to settle upon our lees. We would fain abide where we are and make no experiment of novel circumstances. So in this tension between the fear which so often comes to us and the faith which glorifies God, one of the things that troubles us and and distresses us is novelty, change, something that is different. He goes on still in the introduction that this principle is so strongly developed in certain minds that they 've even been afraid to learn truths which are new to them. Pastors have to deal with this sometimes with people who've been perhaps brought up either with certain emphases or lacking the uh, the the normal instruction in a certain aspect of the truth and because someone's been brought up with and, and has breathed in, sometimes drunk in with their mother's milk, this slightly twisted, this slightly skewed, unbalanced theology, it can be extremely hard to show them something that is missing because it's new and they're fearful. From the milk diet of their spiritual infancy, they're unwilling to be weaned even though strong meat awaits them. They were not taught certain sublime truths in their early days, and therefore they wish not to be instructed now, which is what we've just been talking about. We've known such persons to be suspicious of spiritual attainments, groans Spurgeon. They've been so long victims of doubts and fears that they're now afraid to believe. As for full assurance, they're as much alarmed at it as if it were a crime rather than a grace. They regard it as dangerous presumption and put it far from them. And you may not know people like this, but let me assure you, such people are still there and they're part of many churches. Holy courage, brave reliance upon God, fervent zeal, confidence in prayer, unspeakable joy, these and such like blessings are to their timorous souls perilous things which had better be let alone the high attainments which some of God's people have possessed, of access to the throne of grace, of close communion with God, of insight into the secret of the Lord, these things our dear brethren have thought to be too good for them, too precious for present enjoyment, and they've even suspected that those who professed to enjoy them were likely to have been deceived or were carried away by carnal excitement. He goes on, not just this suspicion of newly learned truths, but suspicion of spiritual attainments. And now a fear of that which is new is more powerful still when we're called to enter upon new labors. And again, if you're a pastor or a minister, uh, you will perhaps know suggesting some new venture proposing some new endeavour, and you can literally see fear flit across people's faces, their eyes widen, their mouths gape. The idea of some novelty in effort is terrifying. And you may have felt that yourself. And let's be honest, as pastors, we can feel it for ourselves, especially if it's not something that we've devised. We become accustomed to our present service, says Spurgeon, which at first was difficult continual exercise in that service has now made it easy to us, and therefore when the Lord calls us to something else, we're afraid to venture. We feel as if we were quite competent for the work we're now doing, whereas we ought to know that even there our sufficiency is of God, and we are not able even in that to do anything as of ourselves, but we are afraid to sail upon seas which we've never navigated before, even though our unerring pilot steers the ship in that direction. And then another element, this fear takes the shape of a foreboding of coming trial when it's even more common and crushing in our experience, anticipating perhaps sickness or death or persecution. To many, he says, the fear of poverty is very bitter. They dread the infirmities of old age. They're dismayed in prospect of the desertion of friends or the loss of beloved relatives in whom their heart is wrapped up. All these things, because as yet we are new to them, are apt to exercise an influence over our faith of the saddest kind. So then, how do we respond to these fears that can so easily unsettle our faith? What is the faith that we set against such fear? Remember Spurgeon's text from Joshua chapter 3 and verse 4 You have not passed this way before. From those words, he's going to bring something by way of consolation, then direction, and then exciting expectation. So you've got this developed uh, introduction in which he explains some of the experiences that prompt the kind of fear that he needs to deal with, and now words of consolation, words of direction, and words of expectation to address those fears. First then, Consider thoughts suggestive of consolation. He wants us to think about the case of the children of Israel. He talks about how, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, none of them had passed the Red Sea. So he's now digging into the history and the context of his text in order to uh, explain that his uh, his text is relevant to just these kinds of situations. And so he, he now talks about them going into the land, advancing at God's bidding, the Lord coming to their rescue, and he asks then, in uh, parallel with that, are you just now where you have ever never been before as to trial? Are the demands upon your strength more heavy than at any former period of your career? Is there now a tax upon your faith such as never exercised it before? So here are some words of comfort. Remember then, whether your way in providence be new or old, it is not a way of your own appointing. A higher power than yours has led you to your present standing place. And so, although your position may now appear to the eye of fear to be a desperate one, says Spurgeon, yet faith knows that God has put you in the best possible position for you to be in at this moment. So your way is appointed by the Lord." Note again, though your present pathway is new to you, it is not new to your God, he comforts Christians. This peculiar trouble, this difficulty of today, which is exercising you, dear child of God, your heavenly Father was cognizant of that. He he was aware of it, knew of it, planned it ten thousand years ago, and nothing about them comes upon him by surprise. The Lord has no emergencies. He's never at the end of his resources. Oh beloved, he says, it makes my heart smile while I mention such a notion. It's a childish folly indeed to think that the infinite God who fills all and sustains all can ever meet with anything that shall to him be hard. You see, then, all along the way, the blood stained footsteps of him who gave his feet to the nails. This is the encouraging thought that the man who of man of love, the, the crucified one, is at your father's side and sympathizes with you right down to Jordan's brink and through the flood and up this hither shore there are the marks of the goings of him who loved the sons of men and bore their sorrows in his own person for their sakes so courage my brothers where Jesus has been we may go he leads us through no darker rooms than he went through before and his having gone through them has sown them with light It's lovely to to hear the way some of you who perhaps know some of the older hymns will be uh, excited by the way that Spurgeon uh, quotes or half quotes or at least alludes to some of these rich words in in the, 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 the sermons that he preaches. But he also wants us to remember that the trials which seem new to you are not new to God's people, new in our experience but Part of the experience of the saints through many generations. Dream not that a strange thing has happened to you. If it's strange to you, it's only to you strange, for the rest of God's saints have suffered the same. He goes on, if, Suppose our position should be new, and the labour new, and the affliction new. It's no sort of reason why it should be any the more dangerous. It's folly to be alarmed at new things because they are new. There may be less danger, my dear brother, after all, in the trial you dread than in that which you are bearing today. You dread poverty, do you? It is an evil, but it may not be such an evil as that which at this present moment bows your spirit down. Care to keep abundance is more gnawing to the heart than the scantiness of penury. Poverty, in the experience of God's people, has proved to be an evil in the midst of which men are capable of great rejoicing. You tremble at approaching sickness, but peradventure there will come with the sickness such joy unspeakable to your soul that the spiritual joy will far outweigh the increased bodily infirmity. It is clear then that a change is not always for the worse, and altered circumstances do not necessarily involve more burdens. Your trial is new, but not therefore the more perilous. Go on and be not alarmed. And then, Moving on, lots of these uh, short paragraphs of speech uh, in this sermon covering a lot of territory. Fear will not diminish the danger. To fret and worry and mistrust, will that prepare you for what is coming? Is that going to do your soul any good? Is that going to bless you or lift you up? Don't import from tomorrow the miseries which God has mercifully screened us from today. So many people are terrified of what may happen. The the what if overwhelms them and the what is is lost to their sight. Then he wants another consideration to console you. Hitherto and up to this moment, we have found our God to be faithful. He's never abandoned us. He's never let us down. He's always given us strength. And then moreover, should we become distrustful while passing by a way which we've never trodden before, if we recollected that progress implies a change of difficulties and trials? What if in going on we meet with sterner trials? Then so let it be, for we shall receive richer grace. Toward the heaven of God we vehemently desire to make progress by his grace." And he says, I might be tiring you out a little bit, but let me remind you that if there come new trials, that those generally end the old ones. When the Lord calls us to a change of position and brings out a new burden, he removes the older load. We shall not tomorrow be pressed with the weight of today. Then, moreover, although we've not passed this way before, the path runs in the right direction. The children of Israel had set their faces toward the promised land they're moving toward the right place. The way's rough, but it's the king's highway leading to the new Jerusalem. Now, I think as you work your way through those lines of consolation, you'll hear something of Spurgeon's sympathetic pastoral insight. What he's doing here is uh, really rehearsing the kinds of things that bring fear, that the ways that people think, the uh, the, the troubles that agitate them. He, he's aware of the way that we process our experience and he's seeing it coming, he's predicting it, he's recording it in his uh, sense of understanding and now he's addressing it. This is how you can be comforted and consoled under all these different kinds of experience. So there's a lot of application even as he works through these things. So with all that pastoral wisdom applied he moves on in the second place to a few sentences of direction and the first of them is this be most concerned to hear the word of the lord and obey it and notice again how he ties this in with the the text and the context of that text this chapter seems taken up with the lord said to joshua and joshua said to the people of israel it's full of commands and and that's the point he wants to make Depend upon it that there's no temptation more perilous than that of supposing that self-preservation screens us from duty and that obedience may be suspended while we provide for ourselves. So fear tends to turn us inward turns us upon ourselves to, to look to our own resources and to work out how we can preserve ourselves. Spurgeon says that's the wrong reaction to these challenges, these unfamiliar difficulties. You should be more concerned to hear God speak and to obey him. Then distinctly recognize the presence of the covenant God of Israel with you. There's faith in operation opposing fear. We never travel so sweetly over the rough ways of this life as when we see that God, the living God, the God of the covenant, the God of the mercy seat, the God of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, the God of the reconciliation by blood is with us and fulfilling his promise, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So here's the direction. Remember that the covenant God of Israel is with you then dismiss from your soul the anxiety which arises from the idea that you are the keeper of the divine life within your soul. Here again you see is the problem of self-reliance, the idea that we are the preservers or keepers of our own lives. That's a strange direction he says, yes, but let me explain it. He says, it's often going to happen that in the time of trouble, our worst fear is this. I'm so afraid that I shall not be able to preserve the grace of God in my heart. Spurgeon says, get rid of that, dear brother, for the right question is not, will you preserve the grace of God, but will the grace of God preserve you? Man, be assured of this, that God's grace will take care of him upon whom it lights. And I appreciate Spurgeon's robustness in this connection because rather than the uh, the modern habit of listening to ourselves, Spurgeon tells us to speak to ourselves, get a grip upon yourself and put away your sinful anxiety in this respect. Now, as further directions, let me briefly say, beloved, if you're now about to enter into a great trouble, do not hurry, make no rash haste again, there's a real insight into human nature here. When we're afraid of a thing, we often dash into it like a moth dazzled by the candle's flame. We're disturbed, we're agitated. It stops us acting wisely and prudently. If the grace of God doesn't make us calm in the time of suffering and peril, says the preacher, we have some reason to question whether it is healthily operating upon our spirits at all. And then, while you don't hurry, don't hesitate. Be brave, Go straight on, though it were a river of fire instead of water, if it's the way that God has appointed for you. If Jehovah bids you, the way is right. Hesitate not. And then, one direction not to be omitted, because it's put by itself a special observance, again rooted in his text, it is this sanctify yourselves. Whenever we're in new trials, a voice speaks out of them saying, Sanctify yourselves. Go back to God. Hold fast. To him, deal with your sins, seek after righteousness, make sure that you are set apart unto God, to to feel that the Lord is weaning you from the poor dainties of earth, that he might fill you with the ineffable delights of heaven, so that you can serve God with both hands. And these are the, the things and that Spurgeon says, This is how you do this work. This is how you cultivate this right response to particular challenges. If you haven't been this way before, then consider what God directs you to do and obey that. Recognize that God is with you in a right way. Dismiss from your soul the anxiety from any sense that you need to sustain yourself if God has promised to sustain you. Do not hurry, do not hesitate, and sanctify yourselves before the lord. It's so simple, it's so straightforward. It doesn't make it easy, but it's good counsel that we can readily follow. And then Spurgeon brings us and I think this is this is great, to exciting expectation. He says, it's not really enough just to be uh, dealing with the fear. I actually want faith to give you hope. I want you to lift up your eyes First, he says, what what? by way of exciting expectation as this river rolls before you, full to its brim, beyond the river, contention and strife await you? Well, he says, what's going to happen? Well, we shall discern the presence of the living God. Joshua puts it this way, by this you shall know that the living God is among you. Now, the men of this world have no living God. They will hardly endure the name of God. They talk of nature, the forces of nature, the laws of nature, and so on. It's, it's the language of science that we hear so often today. They have banished the Lord from their philosophy. I am afraid, he says, there are some professing Christians with whom things go so smoothly that they seldom recognize the hand of the living God. And he says trials actually bring God close. Trials are when you discover, discern the presence of the living God with you. Then what will happen next as you go across this river? Why, in all probability, the difficulty in your way will cease to be. For while the children of Israel saw the living God, they also saw a totally new and wonderful phenomenon. You have not, says Spurgeon, a changing God to deal with. Remember that. Shall the God of our childhood, who nursed us when we could not help ourselves, leave us when we come to second childhood? God forbid! Shall he who loved us before the world was leave us when we come into peril? It cannot be! So he says, rest assured of this, that God has resources you have never dreamed of, and difficulties shall only put you into a new position to see new displays of Jehovah's power and grace. Again, do you hear the note Of faith? And do you hear the hope that faith brings, the confidence that even in facing this particular challenge, this new difficulty, that there will be new opportunities for you to see new displays of Jehovah's enduring power and grace? Well, is that all? No, beloved, we shall see such deliverances that we shall be prepared for future trials. Every step that you take, every experience of God's mercy, only stirs you and steals you for what lies ahead at the next stage or step. Again, Joshua said, "By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites. So the experience of crossing the Jordan and going up against the city that in itself was going to be a confirmation and a, an expectation that what God had done there in bringing down Jericho, God would continue to do as the rest of the land was conquered. So sometimes a trouble when we're marvelously brought through it becomes a kind of stock in trade for us. We look back upon it when the next affliction comes and we say, no, I'm not afraid. The God who helped me on that occasion can help me now. How then we may bless God for great afflictions, for now all that are coming will be little troubles in comparison. And I hope you've had that experience, and I hope you've seen others enjoying that experience, that they've been able to say, remember how God dealt with us then, is God going to be any the less God to us now? And you hear again, there's faith. Fear says, God dealt with us that way then, will he deal with us this way now? Faith says, if God so dealt with us then, then the faithful God will so deal with us again and again and again. He will not leave us or forsake us. And then I think his his last point under this exciting expectation is, again, it's classic Spurgeon because the man's eyes are so often full of the Lord Jesus Christ. His instinct is to, to turn to him, to, to see him, to rest upon him. He says, the best of all, which most pleases the children of God, that all that comes to you will magnify Jesus in your eyes. This is his last paragraph. This is the conclusion of the whole sermon. On that day, when Israel went through the river, God began to magnify Joshua. And oh, when we pass through deep waters of affliction, how the Lord magnifies his son Jesus in our souls, our Joshua, if you like. Jesus is very dear to every child of God, but to the most tried, he is the most precious. You who have had him with you when everyone else has left you, know what a dear friend he is. You who have been nursed by him when your bones have come through your skin, know what a beloved physician he is. You who have been succoured and fed and led and guided by him when all around has been a wilderness to you, know what a good shepherd he is. And you who have been upon the brink of death and have seen all things melt away, know how blessedly he is immortality and life, and what a fullness dwells in him, sufficient to fill the soul when all created joys are gone. O Lord God, if it will magnify Jesus, do what thou wilt with thy people. Not one of us would flinch and try to make provision for the flesh if Jesus can be great. For any other reason less than this, we would not say as much. But for Jesus' glory, for magnifying of his name, if only thou wilt give us strength, we will not dread martyrdom, though it be by fire. Anything for Jesus everything for Jesus. Does not your heart say so, my brother? I know it does if you're loyal to your Saviour, and therefore today you will shoulder the new cross, you will grasp the fresh weapons of the changed warfare, you will take up the new tools in a fresh corner of the vineyard, though you have not gone this way heretofore. If it be for Jesus' honour for us to advance, who desires to loiter? Forward, then, is the message of today to all the soldiers of Christ. Great Joshua, lead thou the way. Amen. Now, I don't know if uh, Spurgeon's congregation had some particular challenge before them at that point. Uh, Perhaps could have gone back into some of the uh, historical material if it were available to us and said, what was going to happen in July? What was uh, perhaps some individual or, or group of individuals within the congregation facing? Was there some distinct need that was causing their faith at that time to fall to a low ebb? Or was it just the the ongoing pastoral sense that so many of the under-shepherds of God's flock have that the sheep are wearied, they're battered, they're fearful, and every new thing seems to be a trial? whether it's some uh, truth newly learned, some spiritual attainment to which they haven't yet attained, some new labor that lies before them, some coming trial that looms in their future. What do we need? We set against fear faith, and out of faith is bred hope and expectation. So, consolation. This is not a way of your own appointing. This way is not new to God. Christ is with you in it. The trials which seem new to you are not new to God's people. Even if they were new in your experience, it's no sort of reason why it should be any the more dangerous. Your fear will not diminish the danger. God has always been faithful to you. Progress typically implies a change of difficulties and trials, and those new trials then generally end the old ones, and the important thing is that that path, though difficult, runs in the right direction. And then, to instruct us and to help us, be most concerned to hear the word of the Lord and to obey it. Distinctly recognize the presence of the covenant God of Israel with you. Dismiss from your soul anxiety from the notion that you're preserving your own self and your own grace. Do not hurry, do not hesitate, and sanctify yourselves pursuing holiness. And in all of this, with all this pastoral counsel, lift up your eyes. For in going forwards, wherever it may take you, so long as it be at God's command, you shall discern the presence of the living God. The difficulty in your way will most probably cease to be. You will be prepared by this suffering and this blessing in suffering for future trials. And most delightfully of all, whatever you pass through, Whatever difficulty it may bring, whatever danger it may pose, the Christ of God will be magnified in your eyes. It's a sweet pastoral sermon and I hope it does us good today. There is so much anxiety and an anxiety, sadly, that often breeds anger among God's people. People clinging thoughtlessly to, to all that they know as if somehow there's security in in static in static spirituality, in merely standing still and battening down the hatches. And yet there are new opportunities, new difficulties, yes, new challenges that lie before us. And here is a word of encouragement and consolation for us, direction and happy expectation, very realistic about the challenges that we face, but praise God, equally realistic about the mercies and the favours that we shall know. So I trust that has been a blessing to you and I hope you'll join with us again next week as we read from Sermon 1060 to 1066 and uh, we're back with Spurgeon's most delightful and treasured theme, Behold the Lamb. From John chapter 1 and verse 36. Do join us then and we look forward to being with you. God bless.